Welcome, and today I'm going to be preaching from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, and the title is Overcoming Obstacles on the Highway, and we've been talking about the highway and how God has a highway for us wherever we are, and in Isaiah 35 it says, um, and, a high shall, and a highway shall be there, and it's a very hopeful thing that there is always a way forward with the Lord. But on this highway, there are many obstacles that we will face. And we're going to take a look at what Nehemiah and the people of God faced. And so we're going to look at verses 7 through 15 in particular. And so I'm going to just read that, and then I'll pray for us and we'll begin. All right? So Nehemiah 4, verse 7. And I'm preaching from the ESV. So it says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 10. In Judah it was said, (coughs) Excuse me. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. (coughs) By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Verse 12, At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be gathered together today. We are thankful God, for your steadfast love and your new mercies, thank you that you dwell with your people. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open up your word and speak to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come like a mighty wind and stir up that which is within us that has maybe remained dormant or has been buried. And so we ask that you would come and stir it up, Lord, and show us what you have for us. Show us what you are doing. And come and fill us. We ask that you would come and fill every single room and every single person right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So Nehemiah 4. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of context um, and how this fits in the whole history of God's redemption. 
In 586 BC, the Babylonians um, under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. Okay, so 586 BC, and they destroyed it. And they destroyed the city. And, and the two most important things in the city are the walls, okay, which are the protection against the enemies, and the temple, which is the place of worship. All right? And so that had, those had been destroyed. And what happened is that I believe under the, um, in Ezra, it, it talks about, and in other books of the Old Testament, the rebuilding of the temple. Okay, and I think that was done around 516 BC or so. And Nehemiah takes place um, even after that, in about 445 BC. So about 140 years after the walls had been broken down, um, Nehemiah comes back and he wants to rebuild the walls and the gates around the city of Jerusalem. Okay? And so he comes back, and in verse 6, right before the passage that I read, it says, So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Okay? So Nehemiah was sent by the Lord, and Nehemiah rallied the people of God, and they began to rebuild the wall. And it says about half, the, the wall was joined together to about half its height because they had a mind to work. But then they hit this critical time where the work that they've been doing is in danger of coming to a complete stop. Okay? And it could have been completely derailed. And what they faced were two forces. And one force, we'll see this in verse 10, is just an internal sense of discouragement or a spirit of discouragement. It says in verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. The strength is failing and there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So they, they hit this wall in, internally. The second force that they faced is the plot and the scheme of the enemy. And so in verse 7, it says, Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, when they heard that this was moving forward, they got mad. They were very angry. And it says, they plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. Not only that, in verse 11, it says, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Okay. And so we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7 through 15. And we're going to see how Nehemiah and the people of God overcame these forces, overcame these obstacles, so that by verse 15, it says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all return to the wall, each to his work. So we see that they were able to continue in the work. They were not stopped. They were able to continue. So the first obstacle that they face is this, I call it the spirit of discouragement. Okay? And if you look at this chapter, verse 10 really doesn't need to be there because the main focus is really on the enemies, 
the enemies of the people of God, represented by Sanballat and Tobiah. Okay? But there's this, for some reason, the author of this book put verse 10 in here. Okay? And I was very struck by this verse. Okay? And so it says, the strength of those who bear their burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. And it struck me because there's a way that I could resonate with it. And what they were saying is this, is imagine, so I'm going to just describe a little bit about the rubble, all right? And so the Babylonians had completely destroyed Jerusalem. They brought it to complete ruin, all right? And whenever you destroy something, right, before you can rebuild upon it, you have to do a lot of cleanup, right? There's this demolition, and after the demolition, you have to clear it up so that you can build. And what the people of God were facing was that they had rebuilt half the wall, but there was just so much rubble. After 140 years, just imagine all the, the dirt, all the burnt wood, all the burnt bricks, right, that were there. And so they were facing that. And they, had, they were very excited about the work. And they had, the, they had a mind to work. They were focused. But now they hit this wall where they're like, you know what? They're just too much trouble. I don't know how we're going to finish this work that we have started. All right? And on top of that, the strength of the laborers was beginning to wear out. They're, they're saying it's failing. Other translations say it's decaying. It's giving out. So they came to this place. And it's interesting what it says in verse 10. It says, in Judah it was said. Okay? And that tells me that the atmosphere in that place was, was negative. This, this sense that it was too much was the, the prevalent, the prevailing sentiment among the people. Okay? And their conclusion out of that was, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Right? So in their, in their heart, they were discouraged and they wanted to stop. And they began to voice it. And the thing is, and we, we see this all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is that words have power. When people voice certain things, they have power to either encourage and bring life or to discourage, right? And this was definitely a discouraging sentiment, okay? And you see, and, and words have power because they're, they're not words, but when the hearer hears the words, it could resonate in their heart, okay? And so this resonated in their heart. And I think it resonated in their heart because after all, they are finite people. They have, they have finite strength. They have finite resources. And as their strength began to fail, as they began to see the amount of rubble that they would have to deal with, they began to resonate with the sentiment, we cannot finish this work. And I think it also resonated with them, and it resonates with me, 
because we know God is not a taskmaster, right? And so maybe he has something, maybe he must have something else for us. Maybe if it's too hard of a work, surely he can't expect us to just keep going and grinding it out. And so in, in many ways, the, the, the logic of verse 10 makes a lot of sense, right? Our strength is failing, there's too much rubble, and we cannot move forward. But if we follow this line of logic, this line of thinking, though, and we, we just think through it in the Christian life, we'll begin to see that we'll run into some, some problems or some problematic consequences of going down this way of thinking. Okay? And the reason is this, is because if we follow this line of logic, we'll end up backing out of a lot of things that God has for us, right? Whenever our strength is failing, right? So our strength could be increasing, our strength could be the same, our strength could be failing, right? Because we're finite beings. That means that every time our strength is failing, we'll give ourselves an easy out. We can back out, right? And anytime it seems to us there's too much to do, too much rubble, it gives us an easy out, right? And so if we go by this, we'll, we'll, along this highway that God has for us, we'll become people who take the first exit that we see, okay? And I don't think that's what God has for us. God does not have for us to take the first exit off the highway, all right? If we stay on the highway, though, and if we don't leave, right, and we will not miss out on the chance to grow in our faith and our faithfulness. Okay? But if we follow the logic of verse 10, we're going to miss out on those opportunities to grow in our faith and faithfulness. So, for example, 1 Peter 1, it talks about, Peter talks about, that we will face a lot of trials of, of different kinds, okay? And the reason that we face trials is so that the tested genuineness of faith may come forth, okay? And so if we, along the highway, if we interpret every trial as a sign that we're supposed to actually leave, we'll miss out on the chance for the tested genuineness of our faith to come forth. I was recently reading the parable of the talents, okay, which talks about faithfulness. And what struck me when I read it again recently is that the servants were faithful after the king left. And the people, the citizens, it says the citizens of that country hated the king and did not want him to reign. But the servants who had been given the money they remained faithful and conducted business with the money that they had, they had been given. And so when our strength is failing and when there's too much rubble, it's actually a chance to tap into 
faith and faithfulness and to grow in that. Another reason why the logic of verse 10 is very dangerous to us is that it it will cause us to miss out on experiencing the reality of God. Okay? And I have to say this, that there's a huge difference between knowing about the reality of God and experiencing the reality of God. All right? So, for example, many of us might know from Isaiah 40, verse 29, it says, God gives power to the faint, and to those who have no might, he increases their strength. Right? And it says, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now, when we quit, when we stop our work because our strength is failing, we will miss out on the chance to experience Isaiah 40, 29. 2 Corinthians 12 talks about, Paul says, God's grace is sufficient and that his power is made perfect in weakness. Right? Again, if we tap out when the rubble is too much and when our strength is failing, we will not get to experience God's power being made perfect in our weakness. Okay? I want to say something about how we face and fight temptation. Okay? Because I think that there's something in us we're conditioned to tap out when, when these... It's easy for us because we know God is gracious. He's not a taskmaster, right? It's easy for us to think when the temptation is so strong, you know what? I'm just going to give in, right? It's the exact same logic. There's too much rubble. We're going to stop working. The temptation, it just keeps coming and coming and coming you know what, I'm going to give in, right? And I think we're easily conditioned to, to take this first exit, okay? But I don't think, I don't think that's biblical, right? Because in James it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so what I take from that is that we keep resisting. We resist when we feel strong, and then when our strength is failing, we keep resisting. And that's when we tap into the reality of God and, and God's help and God's grace and all his provisions. And so even with temptation, we're not supposed to, to give in. We're supposed to keep, keep fighting. And so I want to... The people, the, it says, in Judah it was said, by ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Right? And instead of that, I want to I give you something else. And that is, and this is something that, as I was preparing for the message, God, I felt, God gave me this prayer. It's a very simple prayer. And it's, even when I don't, even when I don't have strength, God, I want to be faithful to you. I will follow you and obey you. Even when I don't have strength. Even when there is too much rubble, I will follow and obey you. Even when I feel that I am not able to, 
I want to be faithful and I will follow and obey you. Okay? What we're tapping into is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is called faithfulness. Okay? Faithfulness allows us to stay on the highway. Even when all the forces internally cause us to choose the exit. So I'm, I'm one, I wonder if there are some of us today who feel very, very discouraged. And so I just want to take this time to just pray. Let's pray for us, okay? I'm just going to just use this simple prayer and just, and you can just join me in praying. And maybe if this is not you, then maybe there is someone you know who is very discouraging. You can pray for that person. And the Bible says that when we call upon the name of the Lord, he will hear us and he will answer us. I shall call upon the Lord and so shall I be saved. And so, Lord, we just pray. We just call on the name of Jesus right now for ourselves, and for those that we know who may be very discouraged, who do not see a hope forward, we just call upon the name of the Lord. And we just thank you that you are the good shepherd who never leaves us nor forsakes us, but you are right there. You're right there with us along the highway. And God, we, right now, we just repent of going by our own strength, going by our own sight. But Lord, we want to now exercise our faithfulness. We want to say, God, we want to be faithful to you. We want to stick with you right now in the name of Jesus. God, we want to be faithful. God, we want to follow you and obey you no matter what. Even when our strength is failing, even when it doesn't seem like we can make it. Even in the absence of hope, God, we just exercise this muscle you've given us. God, we want to be faithful to you. So, Lord, we, we pray this in faith, God, that you will answer us. So we, we ask that you would come and lead each one of us along this highway. May we hear your voice your voice of encouragement, your rod and your staff that comforts us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. We welcome you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's going to move us on to the second obstacle that we face along the highway, and that is an external threat. Okay, and so let me just read for us a, a few verses. So it says, when Sinbalat and Tobiah and Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. 
And in verse 11, And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And Nehemiah does a lot of things in response to this external threat. But the thing that I'm going to focus on today is in verse 14. And, and it says, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And I want to focus on fight. He says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Okay? He emphatically calls the people to fight. And I believe that this is a word for us as well. Okay? And, and I'm not talking about the wrong kind of fighting that occurs all the time in society. And that's the kind of fighting that is of the flesh and is sinful. Okay? But this is the kind of fighting that I believe Paul was talking about when he said, I have fought the good fight. Right? Or when in Ephesians 6, he talks about we struggle, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the schemes of the devil, but against the cosmic powers of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay? And in Nehemiah 4, Sanballat, Tobiah, they represent the enemies of God's people. Okay? And so why does he call the people to fight? And why do we need to be called to fight? Right? Because my guess is if, if we've been Christian for any length of time, we know about spiritual warfare. We know about the devil. Right? And we know about the schemes of the, de- of the devil. And we know we're supposed to fight, be prepared, and engage in spiritual battle. So why do we need to be called to fight? Okay? And I think, at least for me, and I'm wondering if it's true for you, is that in the Christian life, there's a big difference between intellectually knowing about something and actually experiencing it. So we can know intellectually there's a spiritual battle, right? But that's very different than being personally involved in battle. There's a quantum difference, okay? And personally, even though I know that there's a spiritual battle, I don't like to get involved, okay? And so I'll just reflecting. I am not a natural fighter. I prefer things to come easy. You know, I like comfort and peace. I like getting my eight hours of sleep uninterrupted. I like sleeping on a nice bed. I like relaxing. I like vacations. I don't, I don't want to be involved in spiritual warfare. Okay? For those of you who... Um, who like The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, I'm more like Bilbo Baggins, right? Who would rather be home and eat cookies and tea, drink tea, rather than go on an adventure with dragons, right? And honestly, I would rather have other people do the fighting. I'd rather have soldiers and the police, or if we're talking spiritual, I'd rather have pastors, and other leaders do that. I'd rather have Michael and Cindy do that for me. 
I would rather not have to do that. I'd rather just come in and do my little thing. I remember in 2007, right before 2007, right before the church crisis, this was my mentality because Peter was going to be born at the end of December 2006. And he was going to be our second child. And Amanda had stopped working as the administrator of the church. And I was thinking to myself, I am going to relax. I'm going to hang up my boots. I'm going to let other people in the church do the ministry. I just wanted to relax. I was going to go on vacation. Little did I know what was going to happen, right? And so we have these tendencies. Maybe it's fear for some of us. I don't know what it is. But because of that, God has to actually draw us into battle. Okay? I don't think any one of us you know, charges into battle. Maybe there's some of us, right? I'm not like that. We need to be called out. And we need the fight that is within us to be called out and drawn out. We have to cross that threshold of just knowing intellectually and getting personally involved. And the thing is this, is that if we're Christian, there is a fight that is within us. Okay? And that is because it is part of the new creation. If Christ lives in you, and it's in 1 John it says, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Right? So there's a part in us. Because Christ lives in us, and Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, we have that fight against the schemes of the devil. And we have to respond to the call to fight. Right? Isaiah 52 says, Awake, awake, O Zion, put on your strength. I think that's another call to get in the fight. So I just want to give us a few examples of how that fight can get drawn out of us and called out of us. All right? Um, I'm just going to give a few examples from different part, areas of life. All right, so when I started working as a software developer, this is around 20 years ago. This is before I had kids. I was assigned to a project, and the project was in what's called beta, which means that it hadn't yet been released to customers. We were just investing in the new software and developing it. Okay? And... And then what happened is that it goes from beta to version 1, 1.0, and then it goes to version 2.0 and so forth, all right? And during the first 18 months I was there, it went from beta to 1.0 to 2.0, but we had no customers, okay? And... Not because of any merit, I became the, the project lead, okay? Just, again, not by merit, but because every senior person left the project. I was, I, was, um, I was stuck as the leader, and I had three other people on the team, and two of them were very young. And so between the three of us that really worked together, we had 2.5 years of experience, and 1.5 years of experience belonged to me. So very young, and... We, 
as, as our sales team tried to sell it, we came upon an opportunity and we, it was a rather big deal, big opportunity in terms of money. And we're gonna, but we're gonna go to head-to-head competition with, three, with two other com- competitors, okay? And so we're very excited about it because we thought we had a chance to finally make our first sale. And so this company, they evaluated our software and then for several weeks, and then they wrote up a, a paper, and they gave it to each of, the com, you know, each of the companies. And to our disappointment, we came in second. Okay? And so we were a little bummed, but honestly, I didn't care that much. I cared, but I didn't, really didn't care. Right? I cared that, oh, it would have been nice to come in first. But when I went home, I didn't really care about the fact that we had lost. Okay? And I don't think it's because I was, you know, a lazy, bad worker. It just, that was just the sentiment of everyone at work. But then a few days later, my boss uh, sat me down and talked to me. And basically... In so many words, this is what he said. He said, look, the company is making an investment in this product, okay? And you're working on it. But at a a certain point, if the investment doesn't result in revenue, we're going to stop the investment, right? That makes sense. That's just how business works. And he basically said, look, it's do or die. We either improve this product and start selling it, or it's just going to die. And what he's saying is, you'll probably not have a job. Okay? And in addition to that, he said, look, this is what I want you to do. For the next six weeks, I want you and your team to work extra. I want you guys to come in on Saturdays. And I want you to prioritize, come up with five things you need to do to improve this product so that we can win the next evaluation. Okay? And, and back then, you know, we didn't have an HR and we're a small company. I don't know if it's legal to tell people you got to come in on Saturdays for six weeks in a row, but we complied. We did it, Right? I got the message. And so I talked to the guys on the team. I said, look, this is, this is our mission. We need to do something in the next six weeks. And we need, to, we need to talk to the sales team. We need to read the report from the evaluation. And we need to figure out what we need to fix in this product so that it'll start making some money. And I don't remember the five things that we focused on exactly, but I know there was one thing that we focused on. And it was to solve a problem that, our, that people who tried our product constantly ran into. But before this evaluation, we would always just talk it away. We'll say, well, yeah, it's a problem, but they can manage around it, Right? But after this evaluation, after the boss talked to me, we were like, we got to do this. This is the first thing. We have to 
solve this problem and we need a nice solution for our customers. And so I remember we worked on it. And we worked hard in a very focused, prioritized way for the next six weeks. And even after that, we had to keep working. Okay? But the work that we did during those six weeks became, it laid the foundation for the turnaround. Okay? And so soon, our product began to win these evaluations. And we, we, we became, yeah, and it began to do very, very well, right? Now, a few years later, as the, as the product, you know, kept selling, as part of a team-building exercise, we, I had my team take what's called the Strength Finders test, okay? And for those of you who don't know, the Strength Finders test is a personality test, but it tells you it has it kind of splits up our personality into 32 different strengths. And it tells you what are your top five strengths. And the, the most interesting insight we got out of that was that all of us on the team had this strength called competition. Okay? In competition, this is what the strength finder says. It says, like all competitors... You need other people. You need to compare. If you can compare, you can compete. If you can compete, you can win. And when you win, there is no feeling quite like it. Right? And so what, what we realized was that when we lost that evaluation, right, this, this, compet- this competition theme that was within us, it was just buried and it was dormant. And because we didn't care that much, it would have remained dormant, right? But when, that, when, our, when my boss had that talk with me, that serious talk, and said, look, you got to do something, we were a, this, this competition, right, this fight in us came out. And it came out because we began to take responsibility for whether we won or not. Another example of how the, the fight gets drawn out of us is, I'm going to use an example from World War II. Okay? It's called the Defense Production Act, where it was later renamed the Defense Production Act. But in, you know, World War II started in 1939, okay, when Germany invaded Poland. All right, 1939. And at that time, the United States was very hesitant to get involved in any kind of war. Okay? For several reasons. Because, number one, World War I, World War I had happened. The United States had lost over 100,000 men overseas. Right? In a war that was, like, not their own, really. Okay? And they did not want to, the United States did not want its fine young men to die needlessly. But also the United States had this advantage of being protected by the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Right? So they could say, that war is over there. Right? Japan was invading countries in Asia. But that's over there. And Germany is invading Poland. That's over there. And so the United States was very loath to get involved. 
And in 1939, the, the, the size of the U.S. Army was 330,000. Okay? And in comparison, Germany's army was 3.7 million, 11 times larger than the United States Army. I don't remember for sure, but I remember reading that at that time, the U.S. Army was the 17th largest in the world. The 17th largest. That's, that means it was terrible. It was not prepared for war. Okay? In terms of tanks, okay, back then, tanks were very, very important in the war. In 1939, the United States produced 18 tanks. Okay? They, they produced 99 the year before and 150 in 1937. It means their tank production was actually going down. I don't know what they were thinking, but their tank production was declining. Germany in 1939 had 3,500 tanks ready. Okay? Now, all this would change, right? And all this would change by 19. 19- 44 and 1945, the United States Army would number 12 million. From 330,000 to 12 million in five years. And by the 1943, the United States produced 37,000 tanks just in that year. And so by the end of the war, the United States had produced 90,000 tanks. That's compared to a total number of 50,000 for Germany, almost a two-to-one advantage. Okay? And so what changed? What changed for the United States? And what changed was that the United States was drawn into the fight. Okay? And so I think we all know this, but in December 1941, Pearl Harbor was bombed, okay? And before that, even though anyone could see that, oh, this conflict is getting worse and worse, the United States, the public sentiment was to not get involved in the war because it was not our war. But once Pearl Harbor got bombed, it became our war, right? It became the United States war, and the U.S. declared war on Japan and Germany right away, boom. And what happened is that right shortly after that in 1942, in January of 1942, President Roosevelt created what's called the War Production Board. And this is the predecessor to the Defense Production Act. And what it allowed the United States to do is it allowed the U.S. government to convert peacetime industries to manufacturing plants for weapons and military equipment. So, for example, in 1941, before the U.S. got involved, GM, General Motors, and Ford, they produced 13 million cars for civilian use. Okay? After the War Production Board, they created a total of 139 cars for civilians after that. So it just came to a complete stop. And instead, these factories were converted to make trucks, tanks, engines for airplanes, and so forth. Okay? 
the War Production Board also allowed the United States to say, you know what, these materials are needed for soldiers, so we're going to give you a ration. So, for example, rubber. Right? So, civilians could not drive anywhere they wanted. They could only drive a certain amount because rubber tires were very important to the war. Things like sugar, butter, all kinds of things. Americans had to make sacrifices, right? So that those things that they usually would use went to the army. And so all that industrial might that the United States had, it became translated into military capacity. And this is what allowed the United States to not only supply its own army, but it began to supply the army um, of the Soviet Union and England, right? And in the end, that's what it, this contributed heavily to the Allies winning the World War II. Because what was happening was German industrial capacity was declining because the Allies would just keep bombing their factories. So while, Germany, while Germany's um, capacity was declining, the United States was just ramping up. And what I want to highlight from this story is that, see, the, the war was all around the United States, right? But it took getting involved, right? It took the bombing in Pearl Harbor to awaken the U.S. into the fight. And so... How do we enter the fight? Okay, and so let's we go back to Nehemiah four. We'll see that actually we don't have to go looking for the fight. The fight will come to us, but it's the important thing is how do we respond? Okay, if we are doing the will of God, okay, if we are set on walking on the highway. That God has for us, the fight will come to us. Okay? But then it's how do we respond? And in verse 9, it says, We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And I want to just focus on this phrase, day and night. Because to me, it, that phrase struck me because it, it spoke to me that Nehemiah and the people of God, they responded in a very serious and intense way because the situation required a certain seriousness and a certain intensity, right? It was not sufficient for them to say, you know what, guys, let's pray and let's you know, we'll have uh, from eight to five, we'll have our guards up. No, they had to have the guards up 24 hours a day. Okay? And if you read the rest of Nehemiah, the rest of chapter four, what I realized was that, man, Nehemiah went overboard. He was hyper vigilant. 
it was, I was like, you don't have to go that far. So for example, the people, they would have, it says they had, they had a weapon in one hand and they would work with the other hand. And it says how Nehemiah and other people, even while they slept, they didn't take their clothes off. And they kept the weapon at their right hand. So there was a, there's a way that their response was not a casual response. And when I look back at what my boss told me at work, Okay. At first, obviously, I didn't like what he told me, that I would have to work Saturdays, right? And that he was putting this responsibility on me and my team. But in hindsight, I really appreciate it because it caused me to not make a casual response. Because without his involvement, I would have gone on with life as before, as before. And we would not have solved that one problem that customers kept running into over and over. Right? It caused me to not make a casual response. And I think that is key for us, that what we don't want to do is take serious things and respond in a casual way. Okay? It's okay to take casual things and respond in a casual way. We don't have to be serious and uptight about everything. But there are certain things in the Christian life that we have to take very seriously. And it requires a non-casual response. It requires a, a wholehearted response. It requires a sober-minded response that requires us to get in the fight. And not just know about it intellectually, get, but get our feet wet, get our skin in the game. So it says, we prayed against, we prayed to our God. And obviously prayer is very important. Everything starts with prayer. And set a guard as a protection. And so we see that it was a watchful prayer. But it was day and night. It was in a way that would cause them to be ready to fight if needed. So we're going to just close at this point. And I believe God is calling us. I believe God is calling us to faithfulness and to fight. I'm just going to pray for us right now. Lord, we thank you that you are with us right now. We thank you, you reign, and you know, and you see everything, and you see the highway before us. Lord, so I, and I pray for us as a church right now, God, that you would just stir up, stir up faithfulness in us. 
stir of faithfulness that will say, God, even, even when I don't have the strength, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful, Lord. I want to be faithful to you. I want to follow you and obey you wherever you go. I don't want to take the easy exit, but I want to stay with you, Lord. God, I want to resist until the enemy leaves. And so, Lord God, I just ask right now that you would pour out your spirit upon us afresh. Strengthen us and stir up faithfulness right now in Jesus' name. We thank you that your word tells us that it is the fruit of the spirit. It involves our will and our choices, but it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So come and fill us right now. God, even right now, God, we welcome you into places that we're, 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 we've been conditioned. We subconsciously just tap out. Right now, we ask that you would come into those places and stir up faithfulness. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You are with us on the highway to tell us, no, go to the left, go to the right. And Lord, we know intellectually, God, that there is a there is a warfare out there. But Lord, we confess it is so easy to just know that and not be awakened to that. So we ask right now that you would awaken us right now. You would awaken us to the reality of the, the spiritual battle and the fight that you have for us. Oh, Lord, awaken us right now in Jesus' name. Awaken us, stir, stir up that fight that is within us. Oh, strengthen us, strengthen us from the inside out right now. God, where we have not taken a stand before, that you would just cause us to take a stand. God, where we have not crossed that threshold before, you just cause us to cross over that threshold that gets us into the game. God, I ask that you would, you would, um, that you are the, the leader of this church. God, you are the, the chief shepherd. We just thank you that you are leading us come and activate us for what you have for us in this next season. And fill each person right now in Jesus' name. And we pray all this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.